Hello, I'm Danny Fontaine and welcome to Pitch Masters, your one-stop shop for everything related to pitching business, sales psychology and creativity. This week I interview Adam Morgan, Executive Creative Director at Adobe, author and podcast host. Adam Morgan, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really, really excited about talking to you about uh, pitching and everything involved in it because you bring a little bit of a different slant to some of the more salesy type of guests that I've had on recently. So for those who don't know you, though, please give yourself a little introduction. Oh, sure. First of all, thanks, Danny, for having me on the show. It's an honor. Uh, who am I? Uh, some schlub you may not even worry about, but uh, I currently am the executive creative director at Adobe, um, and I've been there for a little over eight years. Before that, it was almost two decades of ad agency life. You know, I worked at big international agencies like McCann Erickson and Euro RSCG and Publicis, and then small little creative boutiques, like when I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for almost five years, which was an amazing experience. So a lot wow. of accounts, a lot of people, a lot of projects, a lot of, you know, dog years of experiences in agency <laughs> life. And then, uh, and then on the in-house side as well. Fantastic. So we'll come on uh, shortly, I'm sure, to a bit more about your ad agency background, um, which I find really exciting. But first, tell me a bit more about your job now. What does it mean to be the executive director of Adobe? We have a creative department. We actually have a couple um, creative departments and we handle all the execution of the brand, right? So we handle everything from big TV campaigns and TV spots down to videos and thought leadership and email campaigns and banner ads and web pages and everything in between. If it's something that's customer facing, um, then we handle the execution of all that creative. Um, we partner with a lot of different marketing partners and strategists and other groups. And, you know, it's a big, big company with a, a lot of cross-functional teams and a lot of crazy things happening. But the day-to-day -day is really the same as it's always been for most of my career, which is, you know, part of your time is spent thinking about the big picture or whatever big campaigns or big programs you're working on. Another part is working with the team and helping grow their careers and, and then sometimes if you're lucky, you can find some time to actually still work on the craft a little bit, whether you're designing or writing or making right. a video or something. So, and I get some of that outlet, you know, I also do a podcast and that's kind of part of my creative outlet. It's called Real Creative Leadership. Um, and so, you know, nights and weekends, that's what you're doing. Just kind of doing fun, uh, explore the space and how we can help, help the industry improve. And you are, of course, uh, an author as well. And I've got your book right here. It's called Sorry Spock, Emotions Drive Business. And when did the book come out? Oh, it was right just before the pandemic hit. So a couple of years ago, but uh, we were just talking earlier. It's like the process of writing a book, especially nonfiction. Like I've written fiction novels and that's great. You just make, oh, really? stuff, up. Yeah, that's you interesting. Just make stuff up. It's no big yeah. deal. But yeah. when you're, when I took on the challenge of writing a, a nonfiction Oh, there's so many references and you have to prove every little detail and it's just all the interviews and all the time. Like it's, it's, I think I had like a, sorry, we're just going off on this randomly, but it was like a 5,000 word outline that I probably changed a dozen different times. Uh, and I even went out like speaking about it and then that would change the outline. It would change the the book. And right. then, you know, I would add chapters and take away. So it's just a long process. I mean, it took probably 
five years of research first. Wow. Then the time to write the book and then the time to find the publisher and then the publisher edits and all of those things in the cover. And then, you know, they time it just right. It takes years and years to get a book out. It's pretty interesting. And what, what kind of drove you to write the book in the first place? Because I think I, I love the book. I've read it. It's fantastic. We're going to talk about some of the content in a, in a second, but I'm always interested to know, did you think, you know what, I've got this idea and no one else is talking about it. I must be that person or what was it that drove you to do it? Not that exciting or altruistic or uh, egotistical at all. <laughs> I think it's that, uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the beginning of the book, like I, back in agency, I had some clients that didn't believe in creativity and I was really dead set on just like, how do I prove that to them? And it was just like a personal issue that I had. And then I had a mentor, uh, Ron Stone, that he and I went on this two-year journey of looking for an answer for that problem. And he helped me. We read tons and tons of books because my goal was just find the right book, hand it to my client, say, there you go. That's what you need to like, let's talk about this. Right. But after years, Ron finally came up to me and grabbed my arm and said, Adam, this book doesn't exist. You have to write it. And I'm like, me? what, how am I qualified? <laughs> I'm not qualified to write this. And he's like, you know, it was pretty inspirational. It was like, who cares? Like no one is qualified. You just need to do it. Right. And it still took a long time after that, but I at least was convinced. I'm like, all right, fine. I will write this book. Let's go down this road. So really I have no reason to do it, but just that's the way it crossed my path and my journey. So in your words, what is that big problem that the book set out to solve? The problem is that uh, for so long, at least in my experience, when you look at business, there's been this, this battle between those who believe in creativity and believe in branding and long-term effects. And then those who are more all about, you know, immediate, immediate sales, immediate, you know, sales funnel pipeline, whatever it may be, like they just want you know, in, instant results. And, and there's been this battle when you break it down, it's really like this argument between logic and emotion. It's creativity versus mm. results. So for me, the need was like that fundamental question of does creativity matter? Does creativity really impact business? Or are we just out here having fun with, with, you know, words and pictures? And that's really like an, in, in agency world, I had a lot of clients who didn't believe in creativity. You know, they were just like, nope, tell the facts and the people will come, you know? And in my heart, I was like, no way. Like creativity, if you really think about creativity, it's emotion and emotional experiences. That's what, that's what we react to. You could tell me a bunch of facts on a billboard and I don't care, but if you relate to me as a brand in a deeper way, I'm in, I'm all in. And so the problem is we had no data on it. And it was just like, it's all just like subjective. And my whole career was just like, well, so-and-so has a higher title, therefore they win, you know? And I was like, there's gotta be a way to prove that out without, you know, like all the same case studies that are out there because a case study, I've seen mm. it spun one way or the other, you know, Apple did this big campaign and therefore it was creativity. Nope, Apple did it because this was the strategy and this is how they got to their audience and told them the right info. So I thought, how do I do it without all of that, you know, subjectivity. And so I came up with the idea of like, well, you know, after all this reading, there's actually, there's a lot of data we have on how the brain works, how humans react to emotions, how like there's a lot out there. And so I thought that's it. I'll just take the subjectivity out of it and just use hard science to prove that emotional creativity is actually better for business. And that's where it turned out. 
Right. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And so, so here's a challenge for you. So I've been working in various IT consultancies and digital agencies for the best part of, I don't know, 15 years now. And I get challenged a lot as a creative when we have opportunities and we have to pitch and we have to present to clients. A lot of the time when I'm trying to come up with emotional and creative ideas, my own team push me back and mm. they say, well, hang on a minute. We're, we're presenting to the head of IT here and we are engineers and he is or she is a black and white kind of person. We don't need any marketing fluff or slogans. We just need to say what it does on the tin. What's your answer to that argument? Oh, I get it all the time. It's a multifaceted argument. I'd first start out and I'd say... IT people don't have unique brains compared to everyone else in this world. So nice try. <laughs> you may say, oh, this is an IT person. I've heard so many about that. They just want to get straight to the facts. They don't like this marketing mumbo jumbo. They just want to be very direct and, and, and straight to the point. Therefore, all your headlines and creative ideas need to just be direct, simple, and done. And I'd argue and say, okay, when's the last time that you know, you're in a room of developers and someone brings up the latest Marvel uh, cinematic trailer, do they still have that attitude of like, nope, I want just the facts. Don't give me all of that emotional mumbo jumbo. No, they're gonna geek out and get over there in their black t-shirt right with the best of them because all <laughs> human beings react emotionally. And the longer answer is it's a little more complicated. So first of all, there's no special, like we, we shouldn't treat we shouldn't treat audiences differently. We should treat brands differently. If your brand is a very direct shoot from the hip, you know, like, you know, no nonsense brand, create around that all day long. But if your brand mm. is a different personality, a different persona, then you need to stick to that and not try and, you know, pitch just to the audience by changing the brand. The long story is it's a little more complicated when you dig into the brain. Like there's a, an easy short analogy that I have is between a calculator and a computer. We have calculators and we have these big fancy computers, right? But if there's something that just needs to be done, like you just need a quick math problem. It's a very logical sequence. Hmm. You go to the calculator, you type it out. Even if you open it up on your computer, you're not messing around and trying to do some quantum physics question of theory, right? You're just right. going to go yeah. punch out the numbers and done. But when you need, but when you have something deeper and emotional, then you start to dig into it and analyze it. The brain is the same way. Like there's logic and there's emotion. If there, and here's a good rule of thumb. If the product or the thing you're trying to sell has very few variables, like one or two variables, is it a, and they've done studies on this. If it's a, let's say it's a vegetable peeler. Vegetable peelers are vegetable peelers. Do you like the color? Do you like the shape of the handle? Like there's very few variables. Then it's a logical discussion. Then you should be direct and straight to the point. But if you have a decision or a product you're selling like a house or a car where there's a million different variables in it, you know, sizes of the room, size, uh, how, size of the windows, how much light, how long of hallways, how, what kind of carpet, what kind of paint, like, like there's a million decisions then the way that our brains, every single human being works is that we're going to communicate all of that information quickly through emotions. And so if you have mm. a lot of, a lot of, a lot of variables, then the best play is an emotional play. And that's where you were going to get to them. So I would say, 
don't don't look at it from the audience. Look at it from like the product, the variables, and the brand. And if you have that figured out, then you know I'll follow suit and create in those boxes all day long. So let's assume that you've, uh, in that short moment of time, you've just convinced all of the naysayers out there, and they go, oh, "All right, you know what? He's probably right." Now, now you've talked about Marvel. I'm, <laughs> I'm down with that. <laughs> What's your process? I think this is this is the thing that people struggle with when I speak to them is. I get the theory. I get that we need emotion, but how do I just put emotion into something? What, what's your advice for how you start off with this? Great. There are a lot of different ways that I've done this in pitching over the years. And I would say, I even did a presentation on this once of like, I went to the psychology of like the five different types of people who are either at different levels of like acceptance to um, against your idea. And what you really need to do is like analyze who are the decision makers in that room before I even get in there. If it's someone who's neutral or if it's someone who's like against me, the way that you are going to prove that idea is very, very different. So so, so let's get specific actually, because that's really, really interesting. So tell me, walk me through the difference between a pitching to a detractor versus an advocate. So the first one is hostile. If someone is really hostile, to your ideas. Um, the first thing you want to do is you want to use a story or humor to warm them up. You want to like get away from deep facts right at, right at the beginning and just kind of let them stop having their prefrontal cortex take over everything and just get a little humanity in there. So you use that to start and then you focus on what you agree on, but it's really important after that to demonstrate expertise and then back it up with solid evidence. Um, so that's where you're going to be using a lot of facts. And then your goals mm. with that type of person is just look for a win-win with benefits. So it's like, you're all about saying, this is exactly what you want. Here's what I want. We can do this together to keep them away from a us and them situation. Next is if you have someone who's neutral. Um, if they're neutral, you want to talk high level about the benefits. And then I used to do this early on before I knew this, but it's this idea of coming up with three to five complete, clear, compelling points of evidence, Right. Usually where it's like, okay, I know the stakeholder and what their goals are. What are five ways that I'm using this idea to solve their problems, to get to their goals, right? And have those in mind, ready to go when you go in and present to them. You also want to use stories and emotional experiences and then discuss alternatives that they may they may raise, like you, that other people would have brought up. So you kind of self-defeat uh, uh, the, the discussion around the problems with it. So you're like, you know, some people may say this idea is blank, but here's why that, here's why we can combat that. So that's if they're neutral. Uh, the next one would be if they're uninterested, like they just don't care. Uh, like they just mm. want nothing to do with it. And that one is, it's usually great. And these are just, you know, in, in just good presentation forms is starting out with a very big attention grabbing story or stat or something that you can get them to kind of like a, a lead, right? To get them hooked into it. And then immediately show how that affects them on a personal connection. So get with a stat and then how that stat connects with them emotionally or personally. And then support that case with three more facts backed, backed by expert stats. Not you, but you have to, uninterested, you have to go away from you and use third party and say, here's why these other experts say this is the right way to go. Because they're going to be less interested in what you say and more interested in what just the world may say around that topic. So again, that was just my take on, you know, different rooms, different people, different situations. It's really know your audience and then create your strategy and presentation to fit them. 
And when we get down to kind of the the inner workings of why those strategies work, it all comes, of course, to the human brain and, and, and how we're wired. And, you know, I talk a lot to, to people about how we must alert the brain before we start giving it a deluge of information and technical architecture diagrams and, and all of that kind of stuff. And in your book, you talk about it's finding an anomaly. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I'll tell you about that. Um, because here's the thing, like when I was, when I grew up in creativity, it was always about find the, you know, the big creative idea, the shock value, the something that get people's attention. And so I started digging into that and said, okay, what is attention? Do we really have attention span? Are we really, you know, like a goldfish? We have like eight seconds and unless something, you know, really catches there, we're kind of done. And after doing a lot of research and I ended up interviewing neuroscientists to find out about this, um, they really break down like attention is all about, well, in the brain, here's how it works like, without getting too deep, too fast. <laughs> like you just said, a deluge <laughs> sure. of information. But basically... <laughs> Our brains are more wired to predict than to absorb, meaning mm. there's, there's so much information around us constantly. I mean, if you really think of like vision or, you know, hearing or touch or smell, like there's just so many bits of data that are flowing into us all the time. And there's no way in, in filth that our brains are going to hold on to all of that, right? And so the only things that our brains will hold on to are the things that break our prediction or are different than our prediction. For example, like if you're staring at a blank wall after a while, your vision will shut off because there's no new information, right? If you've ever done that trick. Or, you know, I talk a lot about going driving on autopilot when you go home. Like there's just, you, you, you suddenly get home, you don't even think about it because it's all the same stuff and your brain's used to it, right? right. The way that it preserves its very heavy need for energy is by predicting everything. Otherwise, you know, we'd have to like, there was, I, I could go off on so many studies of like <laughs> why cooked food actually gives you the right amount of energy versus raw food and why it's enough that your brain takes so much energy. And so the way it keeps it from just dying all the time is to just predict. And then according to these neuroscientists, it's like, unless there is something that breaks that prediction or prediction or something that's different or something that's unique, in other words, an anomaly, Unless there's an anomaly, your brain's not going to um, uh, pay attention to it. But when you find an anomaly, then suddenly it's like your prefrontal cortex kicks in. You're you're aware. You're you know you're understanding, and and that's regardless of whether that's an emotion or whether that's logic. It's still like that's the way in. That's how you get the brain to light up is through an anomaly. And when you start to look at all these other marketing or selling or other books, like you know, let's say Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, you know, they talk about like. What are the things that stick that people pay attention to and, and connect with? And when you look at their list of like seven or eight things, like almost all of them are like anomalies. Anomaly is news, something unique, something special, something we've never thought mm. of before, something that is stands out from the ordinary. And we've always just called that creative, right? Let's you got to be creative. Right. But really, it's just that anomaly. So when you think about that, that's the first ingredient that you need in order to, for people to create a memory. And the second one is emotion. And that's because the way the brain and the synopses and way, the way it communicates is through emotions. Um, if you think of emotion as just like a huge concentrated portion of logic, and that's just how the brain quickly communicates it to you. So that's why emotions are so critical. So if you have an anomaly and you wrap it with a ton of emotion, that's where you're going to get a memory that sticks. You think of like 
very emotional moments in your life, you know, emotional, you know, situations or circumstances. And those are the strongest memories, right? Because they're just so highly emotionally charged. Whereas the stuff you're not thinking about again on autopilot, it's just going to disappear. So therefore, when you're talking to an IT person and if you do something that's just not going to be an anomaly and it's not emotional, it's going to completely go under the radar and no one's going to remember it. They may see it and it's gone because according to the neuroscientists, it has, you know, the neuroplasticity of your brain has not locked that in because it didn't have mm. the two important ingredients. So no matter who you are as a human, you need those two elements in order to make a memory and remember it. And you said something really interesting there, because normally we talk about logic and emotion almost being the opposites of yes. each other. And perhaps, perhaps they are by definition, but you are talking about how emotion is just a big old ball of logic. Explain. That is pretty interesting because the funny thing is like, you know how I talked about in the beginning of this battle between the two halves of business of like direct and logic and then more emotional and branding. Right. That was one of the big discoveries I found. Like after digging it in from a neuroscience perspective, your brain treats those two things the exactly the same way. So a decision is logic. You're going to use your slow system or your logical brain to like make a decision. I love green. Right. And then right. you lock the way it locks it back in is through an emotion of like, I love that, like the feeling of pride or ownership or whatever it may be. Right. Like that's how it locks it in through emotion into your brain. And then later on, when you run into those different situations of like, oh, there's green, like it's the way that you see your favorite things, your favorite brand, your favorite movies, whatever. It's like just a quick hit of dopamine or serotonin it's neurochemicals, which neurochemicals are emotions. They're the regulators of emotion. Mm. Right. So when you keep building up all those memories and keep locking them in, it's like, because your fast system, which is your emotional system, can communicate really quickly. You know, it's not just fight or flight. It's like all the things you like and you love. Like if you, if I stopped for a second and said, think about your favorite band or think about your favorite movie, like there'll be a lot of emotions that are quickly coming. It's not going to be like mm. in scene 3.4, I like, like you're just, you're <laughs> yeah. right. And so it's just this buildup, like your long-term storage is all emotions locked away in ones and zeros, right? That's how they're connected. And so the reality is it's, it's that there's not like a totally separate part of your brain that's like, here's my touchy-feely animal side of my life. And then there's another side of your brain that's just all like ones and zeros and logic. No, it's mixed together. It's ones and zeros and, and emotions all together. And so that, yeah, again, when you are thinking logical, it's slow and it's painful. It takes a lot of energy. And then you lock that in. But when you're thinking emotionally, you're bringing back all that logic. I'll give you an example. We talked about really complex decisions like buying a house, right? Mm. Some people will say, oh, you can just walk into a house and you can just feel it if it's the right house, if you're buying it. Mm, yeah. But what's really happening below the surface is you walk in and your brain is saying, I like open concept. I like more light. I like this type of thing. That kind of carpet makes me feel creepy. This color paint <laughs> makes me feel sad. Like there's a yeah. thousand decisions yeah. of past logic that you've had around what you like in life. And instead of you analyzing it, it's so fast in your brain. It's just like, oh, it feels right. Like that's how it's communicating all of those past decisions. So it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions that you think about in your environment being expressed in a quick emotion. So yes, logic is emotion. And that's the, the most fascinating part of it. It's just concentrated. Emotion is concentrated logic. It's your way of like brain of like not having to slow down and rationally think of every decision, but it's like, I've already done all that work. 
bam, here you go. Right. Done. And so if we, if we keep to the analogy of a house, that's interesting because I get exactly what you mean. Um, when you walk in a house, you love it, you hate it, if you're going to buy it, etc. Which means that there is no one house that can please everyone by logic. Probably, yeah. So when we are pitching ideas, the creative, emotional uh, work that we do will elicit different emotions from different people in our audience. How do we try and create a pitch or a presentation or a piece of advertising that hits all of the people that we want it to in the right way? There's probably, like you said, there's no perfect house. There's no perfect campaign for everyone in this world. But there are common groupings, right? There are mm. certain feelings of nostalgia or insight or wonder or you know wow or whatever it may be that are very common among human beings. Like the only way we're communicating is saying, hey, do we all agree that that thing over there is red and that that thing over there is hot and that thing over there, you know, warms me up? Yes, we all agree. And so you're looking for like what I call is like Seinfeldian truths, because that's what his whole movie was, <laughs> show was all about. Yeah. Like find these little human truths and then just play them up. Um, it's really finding those human truths and then presenting in a way that everyone gets it without it being too over the top, right? So when you're going into this room and you're trying to pitch on something, there's, there's, there's like we've already way over analyzed what's going on in the brain, right? Like what you're really trying to do and what good creatives are good at is coming in and saying, hey, first of all, we got to set the scene here. Again, know what type of an audience it is. If they're combative, you say, hey, this kind of stuff works. This over here works. And here's why this works. Like, don't discount it. Truly believe yeah. it. And oh, by the way, here's this cool idea. Emotion, emotion, emotion. Here's this cool nostalgic moment. You love it. You feel it. And then the biggest part of that afterwards is like convincing them to not go back to logic and just be like, well, I had a checklist of six things and that only hits three of my six. So therefore it's out. You got to convince and say, there is not, there's not one that's going to be perfect of all six. If you try and do this logical direct thing, then you're missing out on all the emotions in three through seven, right? You know, on the other things. So it's a matter of saying, this idea resonated. You felt it. I felt it. Our audience will feel it. Let's put it out in the world and let's just give it a try. You know, it's like trying to get people to agree on trying an idea rather than because it's so much easier to try and fight it and not, and not want to do anything unusual or change. So that's where mm. you as a, as a show person, you know, get on stage and do the song and dance of like, here's the cool idea and here's why. And let's, let's all fall in love with it. Now to take it just to a slightly more uh, banal level, I suppose, sometimes the challenge with that, and this is again, something that I face fairly regularly is you want to create this brilliant story and the creative to go along with it. But you've also got a really stringent list from procurement of everything that they're going to mark you on out of 10 in the room. And for your story, you might get 10 out of 10, but you've still got to cover all of their other points. So how do you find, I don't, I don't know the answer to this one. How do you find the right balance, I guess, of logic and emotion to kind of hit the check boxes, but also please the audience? Or is it a case of sometimes being bolder and saying, I don't care about the checkboxes because no. this is, no. <laughs> yeah, I, that'll never work. They'll have their checklist. But here's what I do that often helps is you create a hierarchy. 
and it is so hard and even they can't do it. So you put it back on them and say, okay, you've got seven points that we have to hit. Of all of these, what's the number one most important thing? If you had to lose all but one, what's the most important? And they'll hem and haw and say, well, it's one through four. Nope, like you gotta push hard. Like we need a hierarchy. Maybe even before you go into the creative ideas, like this is a pre-meeting. Let's go through mm. and figure out what the hierarchy is because we know that there's no way in hell that we're gonna get across seven of those things in one, in one sentence. There's no way. And, and the audience isn't gonna absorb that way. So let's make a hierarchy. I've been doing this for so many years. It's just like get them to agree on what's the number one most important thing and the number two. And the number one can't be like, a long run on sentence with and, 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 and in commas yeah. and colons, right? Yeah. What's one idea? What's the second, third, fourth, and fifth? And then once we get that hierarchy, then we can say, now let's agree. There's a time and a place for everything. This billboard over here is only going to hit on number one. This email is going to hit on one through five. This landing page is going to go all the way to seven. So now that we've agreed on that, and in that landing page, the headline is only going to hit on number one. The first subhead is going to hit on number two. First line of copy, you know, the first paragraph is going to be number three and then so on and so forth until we get down to the call to action, which will be seven. That's the order. So you take logic to them. Be very logical with me. Let's be real. Like we're not going to fit it all. There's no magic bullet. So now that we've got an order and we've got it all logically figured out, now I'm going to come back and tell you like how we're going to make just that number one super emotional. And then we go from emotion. Like that's the way people work. They start with emotion and then they go to logic. We'll start with emotion and then head down to the further and further we go through the experience, the more and more logical and straight to the point we'll get. So the IT lovers will love the end, but they're going to have to be at least, and maybe it's not like you got to, if they're like, we're super IT, we're never going to love, you know, super crazy, you know, (laughs) Super Bowl commercials. No, but at least you can make that headline and that image human and approachable. Yeah. And then dig a little bit deeper into logic. And a lot of it, I think you'll agree, is about telling stories. That's... (laughs) kind of one of the key, if not the key vehicle for us to elicit emotion from our audiences. And, you know, there's a million books and a million websites and a million different points of view. So I'm really interested to know, what is your process or framework maybe when you create these emotional human-centric stories? You know, to be fair, I have... You're right. I've studied a million different ways of saying, here's how we use the hero's journey to describe Mm -hmm. this product. And I guess I usually just keep it in a more simplified form, which is what's the story arc. And maybe it only has three phases. Maybe it's like people believe in data. This product is the best in the world about data. Therefore something, 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 right. Mm -hmm. It's like three steps. And so I'll usually just kind of craft those. And in marketing, you see people do that a lot. Like what are our three main pillars? But they usually have those three main pillars are completely disparate from each other. So in my world, it's always like, what's the story that's going to unite those three in a natural flowing story, an arc? And then that's where I'll take it and then blow it out into what's the experience. Like as long as I have that story, now I can tell that on a billboard. I can tell that on a video spot. I can tell that on a whatever and go into more depth on things. But it always starts with, What's that simple story arc that we're trying to communicate that like, it's like in a bed of nails, what's the one nail that's going to poke out and hurt and pay, make me pay attention mm. rather than me laying on a million stories and elements. Right. It's just, just that one simply. Yeah. And I think often that we, we do kind of overcook these things. We think, you know, 
Right. What are all the reasons that we are the best company in the world? Okay. Well, we're up to 57 reasons now, guys. We're doing well. Let's uh, start listing them out. And that's, that doesn't work either, does it? No, that's a bed of nails. Just like, you know, when Coca-Cola says, here are all of our wonderful sugary beverages. Like you've lost them all. They don't care. They have to yeah. go on the personality of each distinct product. And why does it have, you know, why does one drink over another have any personality or care or anything? Yeah. Like it's just, it, you can't hit them with a million, a million, like a bed of nails. That's really what it is. You can just lay on it and nothing is going to get through. So one of the other things that you've talked about is that we only remember about 10% of what we actually, we hear. And, and I guess it comes to the same point. You've got to figure out if you're doing a pitch for an hour, say, your audience is really going to barely remember any of that hour. So you've got to really try and focus on creating memorable moments around those parts that you want to be memorable, I suppose. How, how, how do you approach that? <laughs> in theory, I totally get it. How, how you actually do it is like when I've been in pitches, it's like the first or the last thing that you say or do or is what they're going to remember the most. Mm. So in your presentation, make sure that your most powerful things that you want to get across are either first or last. And there's a lot in the middle that maybe support steps and may go away. But yeah, that's kind of how I would focus on that. It's really think about those, those few elements that you want and put it in the right spot. Like when I'm putting together a presentation of like certain number of ideas, and by the way, like I just know in my experience, whenever I present above three or four, you get into like five or six ideas, they all die. Almost inevitable, mm. almost always. If you have three, what I found is the best is like have three or four ideas and then allude to the fact that there were hundreds of others and you could show a list of a bunch of things really quick just so people go, oh, okay, they've, they've done their homework, but then bring it back and just focus on those few. That'll be better than sharing 20 ideas. They're all dead because the brain will just start to turn to mush. So that's how I focus it. Like if it's only going to be a little small part, then you focus what you're what you're giving them. This is an interesting question for you. So I speak to a lot of people who pitch, but actually a lot of the people I speak to wouldn't call themselves creatives. They might call themselves uh, experts in a number of different fields. But when we talk about creativity, not, not in the broadest sense, but more in the aesthetic sense, they say, you know, get your story perfect and then the visuals can um, assist in telling that story. It's, it's the secondary component almost. Is, is that something you agree with? How much weight do you put on what people are seeing with their eyes compared to what they're hearing with their ears? What's the thing that's going to resonate more? Maybe it's like the headline really has a, a very powerful, bold statement. Then you want the image to just kind of play second fiddle and, and be there to help create the mood. But sometimes the visual is everything like that's all they're going to remember and then get the words out of the way, you know? So it's, it's really a, it hundred percent depends on the idea and the situation and what, and what is emotionally charged. Um, because, you know, for sure they say a picture is worth a thousand words and it is, if it's an emotional picture, if it's mm. a boring corporate picture, then it says nothing. And just as words can be boring and say nothing and become vanilla, there are also a lot of like, 
triggering emotional words just by saying what they are. Like there's a whole study by this guy on, on uh, neuro words that are already full of emotion, like the word falling, right? The second you mm. hear falling, there's already like a, a feeling of like something's happening, you know, there's movement, things are going, you know, something's going on. So using some of those context words can also elicit just as much emotion as, as an image. So you mentioned headlines just then, and actually headlines and copy is something that I personally really can geek out on all day. And something I see a lot again is people doing two things wrong, in my opinion. One of them is having a short headline that really says nothing other than labels what's underneath it. And the other is having a headline that is basically a paragraph of words. And I know you've done some a lot of thinking and work around what is the ideal number of words in, in, in kind of a headline. I have an article on Medium all about this, the ideal length of a headline. Right. And I'll tell you what's fascinating about that is because the like the unwritten rules around headlines is that you have to be short and punchy. People have short attention spans. Mm. They're not going to read anything. Therefore, get it in and get quick. Get it, you know, so that you can share something. And I know that's the prevailing notion. And most designers love that story because it makes it look more beautiful when it's just, you know, a couple words there and then a beautiful picture. But as I've looked into it more and more, and there are a lot of studies on this, it's not necessarily true. There is a limit for sure. There's a limit of how many characters are going to be in your email you know, mm. subject line. There's a limit to how many words you can fit on a billboard that, that are actual visible, that are visible, right? So the medium really does dictate half of it of like where you're consuming this content. And I'd say the second thing is there's this whole thing of like, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's a similar hierarchy of engagement on different channels of content, right? So like, for example, on a social a social ad versus a white paper versus a video, right? Like you're going to engage in different ways to different types of, of content. So for me, it's like, it really depends on a, the medium or the type of content. And then number two is, is really like the audience and what their expectations are at that point in their journey, mm. because there's plenty of study uh, or research out there that shows that actually longer headlines of like 15 words pull higher in SEO and ranking and click-through rates than something with like four words, which is counterintuitive. You're like, no, no one's going to read that long. <laughs> but the thing about it is it's not saying that just oh, any string of 15 words is not going to perform right. a string of four words. It's all about context. So whenever I hear these questions, I would say you're measuring the wrong thing if you're worried about word count. It, it's all about the value you bring. Again, the anomaly, the emotion. If it takes you 10 words to tell a story that is really super emotional and powerful, that will work a lot better. If you can do that in four words, you know, and you're lucky in some poetry and there's some good, you know, words that just express it. I've seen it done amazingly, but it doesn't tell me that it's better to necessarily have fewer than it is longer. Like they can show that longer still works greater or better. To me, it's all about the value you bring. Does the headline have the information that you need? If it's a directional mile post in the middle of a website just to get you to say, okay, this kind of stuff is content is underneath here, that's fine. It's a directional headline. But if that's like the main headline at the top of the page, the visual better be doing a lot more work if it's just a, 
you know, you look at Apple, they don't use big headlines, but the visuals are the sexy thing that everyone cares about, right? And in addition to that as well, it is the tone of the words as well. And I'm very careful saying that because my natural inclination is to say it's the tone of voice. But I, I know that. Yeah, you don't like that. Tell, oh. tell me about that. Uh, to me, it's almost always used unintelligently because right. that would be like me saying, oh, the, the spacing of this, you know, of these words are so often a designer would be like, oh, it's the kerning. What are you doing? Like, it's just, it's all right. Off, right. So I, I know I'm a snob. I'm a word snob, but on a, a brand has a voice and there is tone and there is style. And those are three distinct things. The voice so explain, is, explain the differences, especially okay. between, well, all three actually. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Voice is the persona. That's what you stand for. Tone is how it's expressed. For example, you could be a big movie star and you walk into a cocktail party and you're walking around talking with different peoples. And in one moment, you're boisterous and loud and laughing. <laughs> and then the next moment, someone says something sad and you're like very somber and, and hushed. Are you a different brand or a different person? No, you're still that same big personality. Mm. You just have different moments the way you express it. Tone is how it's expressed. Brand voice never should change. You should always have a brand voice and stick to it. That's what you stand for. But a brand tone can change based on the situation. The tone is going to be different in a headline than it is going to be in the middle of a long form paragraph because you're going to be more informational, right? Your tone, I, I created this whole thing like the hierarchy of uh, the hierarchy of tone years ago to like explain those different moments at different times that the brand needs to express itself. So it's like, it's almost always used incorrectly just saying tone of voice is a catch-all for everything. Yeah. But tone of voice is just tone. Right. That's not voice. So whenever people use tone of voice in place of your brand voice, then it drives me crazy. And then what about style? Style is all of the grammar and elements that come together to express that voice and tone at that moment. For example, style would include how do we deal with serial commas, right? Or how do mm. we deal with capitalization? Or how do we deal with um, capitalization for product things that are proper nouns, right? The way that you use all that style, does the style help it to be more friendly and casual and that fits a certain brand voice or tone? Or are you gonna use the, all that style stuff to make it feel more formal and serious, which would fit a different brand's mm. and style and tone? So um, it, it's just, it's like the left, like after you establish the voice and you figure the right moment for the tone, then the style comes in to make sure it's consistent across all of those moments. So we've got anomalies, we've got storytelling, we've got voice and tone and style. Um, we've got all sorts of things going on here. Well, how do, you, how do you bring all of that together to make an idea, and I think this is how you put it, sticky? Something that an audience will go away remembering and talking about rather than just forgetting immediately. I think sticky, you know, it's so funny. Like we, we've talked about this a little bit where in the past it's like sticky means attention grabbing mm. or sticky means um, unique. But really those are just different ways of explaining an anomaly. To me, sticky is that combination of an anomaly and emotion. So it's basically creating a memory. It's memorable. If it's sticky, it's going to stick with you in your memories. And the way to do that is find something unique or special and then express it in a way that people can feel it. 
that right there is the formula. Like, let me give you an example of just another study, Paul Zak. So he's the father of neuroeconomics. Um, and he talked all about, you know, he was on a flight and he was watching Million Dollar Baby and he was bawling his eyes out. And he's like, if they'd come up to me right then and said, hey, we want you to give to this cause, you know, the same thing that was yeah. part of that movie. He's like, I would have given so much money. It would have been yeah. crazy. But he went on later and said, how do we, how do we measure that kind of, uh, like, not just people having an emotion, but where it turns into action, where you want to give money, right? And it's so funny that I came across this later, but it totally fits with that whole story. And his basic formula was anomaly plus emotion equals action. Right. That was it. That's, that's his formula. So if we can say, here's something unique, get their attention, wrap emotion around it so they make a memory, that will equal they're going to buy your product. And he could measure people in a lab up to like 82% accuracy if they were going to, you know, buy your product or spend money on your product based solely on those two elements. If he could find them present, then he could say, yes, they will. And he was accurate up to 82%. And how do, how do you measure those kinds of things? He measured it by first, he said, okay, what's attention? And he, he measured things such as, you know, endocrine glands of like how much sweat they produced or how much they cared or how much their eye focused or how much like there was all these different things that he used for attention. And then for emotion, he would measure things like the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve, which would put out a whole bunch of oxytocin. And he said it was an easy way to know like oxytocin is the emotion of like, I care about you. You're in my tribe. Like I'm a part of it. I will, you know, whatever, like brand affinity, right? So he would measure that while he was showing ads and things to people. And then he could say, oh, if those chemicals or those interactions or those things happen, then they're going to buy your product. And that's how we, that's how he made it. But it's like hooking people up to fMRI right. machines. Like we're not going to do that all day long. <laughs> but we can at least take the, the formula and say, oh, great. Look at my idea. Does my idea have an anomaly? Is it newsworthy? Is it, you know unique? Is it something, whatever that may be? And is it have an emotion? Meaning, does it have some nostalgia around it? Or is it like some big wonderful idea or inspirational or whatever emotion you want? Like find an emotion that fits your brand. And are those two things present? Then you have a really good chance that it's going to be sticky and people are going to care about it and make a memory. Out of interest, have you ever uh, been privy to, to using any of these real scientific machines to just, oh, I don't know. No. I don't know. All through study. I, I don't stay in the lab. <laughs> I, I, I think it would be quite scary, but interesting to put some of your own yeah. ideas through it. <laughs> One's own ideas. That is, yeah. Well, we've come close. Like we had at Adobe Summit, we had um, this woman named Rana June come in and she had a company that was kind of like the, how would I say this? Like the the more accessible street version of what um, I was just talking about with all right. those machines. Um, she had it where she would have people and then we did this on the show floor where they'd come to Adobe summit, they'd go into a room and they'd put on some earphones and there was just like one thing that would hook up to them. Right. And then they'd watch some stuff on the screen and it would measure your emotions as you were watching it of like highs and lows and whatever it was. And so they could at least like show you, a, a data graph of your emotional journey by watching certain wow. things. And they could show when you had a lot of high emotion and later on, you're like, yeah, I remember that part for sure. And it was just kind of a, it was, I mean, that was like four years ago or whatever, five years ago. And it was just like <clears throat> on the cusp of us trying to 
find ways to measure emotion, right? Because so far, like when you look at all of our measurement tools, it's like focus groups, that's logic, surveys, logic, you know, multiple choice logic, um, clickable data, debatable, probably logic, but it's not really showing what they're feeling with behavioral data. But anyhow, I'm hopeful, like there's been a couple other research firms who are getting close on that and it's just not, it's not there yet. The tech's not there yet, but I really hope that maybe someday, and it may be to our detriment that every watch we wear or a pair of eyeglasses or TV screen automatically can sense our emotions and then knows, you know, if we're going to donate money to a cause or buy something. Yeah, it's very black mirror. It's scary, but it's also (laughs) Yeah, very, Not not sure whether I'm ready for that in my life or not, actually. I think I'd rather keep my emotions to myself. So it'd be remiss of me not to talk a little bit more about creativity. So you've, I've been grilling you on the brain and, and, and emotions and all that kind of stuff. Um, Let me ask you a a basic question. Give me, give me your advice here. A lot of people say that's all well and good. You talking about all these creative ideas and creative things that you guys do, but I'm not a creative. How do you respond to that? Can we teach people to be more creative? Can they practice? What are the the methods we can do to help change someone's mind about whether they think they're creative or not? I have to deal with that every day because a lot of the people that I'm targeting are business owners and C-suite and VPs of something. And so many of them don't believe they're creative. And we, and they come to this company that's Adobe and it's like, oh, it's the creative company. Well, we're not into that. You know, we're not into creative. I'm more into like results or I'm more into action. And for me, it's been, it's more of like a, and I know we've got some campaigns and things in the work that are on this topic, but it's really a re-educating to them because the reality is, like I said before, IT doesn't have a special brain. Other people don't have special brains. We all have the exact same hardware, but we've just forgotten that there really are a lot of things that make us human that are 100% creative. And when a business owner pivots in the middle of a pandemic, that's creativity. When a scientists find some new little anomaly in his data that's creativity you know when they when when all of these actions that seem that are not creative happen like sometimes i have to use different words to convince them and say okay it's human ingenuity mm. or innovation right and then they're like yeah we're all about innovation i'm innovative i'm ingen- in you know i have ingenuity yeah. or whatever it may be and they'll believe that and then i'll say <clears throat> it's the same thing as creativity right. that's what i'm right. saying like you are like as a human being, you're inherently creative. And that's why machines haven't taken over the world because they're hundred percent logic. And the way we operate, we change our mind and we're fickle and things are moving around and it's very emotional. It's, it's all over. Like we are creative entities. In fact, what makes us human is our creativity, our passion, our ability to love, our, you know, care for other people. Like we are creative beings, end of story, hard stop. So capital C creativity it just takes them showing a different point of view to let them know, yes, you are creative and stop telling yourself that you're not creative. You may not be artsy fartsy in design and do whatever, but you still have your own medium and you're still very creative. Now there is certainly a creative process and people use it in different ways. They just don't label it. But, you know, let's say a business leader in a meeting, <clears throat> if they're, if you think about the process for creativity where it's like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to fill my brain with all these different ideas. Then I'm going to make new connections. Then I'll have a eureka moment and I'll finally have that aha. That happens still in business meetings. They're just absorbing all the things. They have their checklist, but they may just jump to a quick decision before they allow time 
for those ideas mm. to come through. So oftentimes I have to, before the meeting, you're like, don't be harsh to judge something, just absorb all the stuff and then focus on your feelings. So focus on what you felt from it, not what your checklist says. And sometimes you can get some people to like turn and like focus on the right things and be like, I get where you made that creative leap. Yeah, that's going to resonate because that's how your audience is going to interact with all of these things. They're not going to sit back as if they're in a focus group and they're going to analyze right. exactly what you want. No, they're going to be like, oh, I like that ad. Oh, yeah. I, I think that thing's cool. I like that brand. Like they're, they're, they're doing it in a native way that is very emotional. So you've got to get your leaders to understand that process and then put themselves in that same process. And in terms of when you're in the process, coming up with ideas, the, 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 there are lots of things and ideas around about how we can make ourselves more almost susceptible to our own subconscious ideas coming through. So if if I've got to do a big pitch and I've got to come up with an idea that you know no one's figured out yet, Maybe I'll have a shower or go for a run or have half a nap and, you know, get into a certain sleep state experiment, Dali style. What's your process? Do you have any tips or, or, or tell us about how you might do that? Yeah. And that the whole reason why all of those things work from showers to driving in the car with a notepad behind you or a notepad by you when you're going to bed, it's just allowing your logical brain, like your prefrontal cortex to just chill out for a minute. Mm. And then you're going to kind of getting more in tune with your subconscious, right? You're trying to just let, cause it's a lot faster at it than your logical brain at making connections. And that's what creativity is. It's making connections. So what have I done? There are a lot of ways that you can get really fast at it. You know, <clears throat> for me, for a long time, it was like the chair I'm sitting in. If my feet are up and I'm just relaxed in a state that's more casual, right. and I'll, I'll, get, I'll get better. I listen to wordless music that has a lot of emotion in it, but no words. So it doesn't make me think about the words. I'm just feeling an emotion. And then I'll, you know, come up with ideas. I look at ways of how I organize the ideas under charts and then cross-reference, you know, and just like, so I'm not even thinking about the ideas. I'm just looking for patterns. Like there are a lot of ways. In fact, if you want a really good book on how to get ideas faster, it's called Jumpstart Your Brain by Doug Hall. Brilliant book. That made a huge impact in, in my career. So that's all it is. Like finding the ways for you to, Get rid of the distractions, get in that flow state, be calm and relaxed so that you're not stressed out. And then that you can just, you know, kind of turn off your prefrontal cortex a little bit. So you've been in advertising and creativity and client side and agency side. You must have seen firsthand a heck of a lot of pitches, if not done a lot of pitches yourself and certainly heard about a lot of pitches, I'm sure putting you on the spot again here, but do any pitches really stand out, jump into your mind if I said, tell us about one of the greatest pitches you've ever seen? There have been hundreds and hundreds and I still get them. I get pitched a lot now. Right. Um, just on the spot, there's one that that, that comes to mind um, that was really interesting. There was this, this agency that had been working with this brand, this bank for years and years and years and years. And they had a, a longstanding relationship. And the people who already had the business had already done their pitch and shown some great work and everything was great. And it was basically a done deal. And then they just had a couple more agencies that they were going to listen to after that. Mm. And it seems like a silly thing, but you know, the agency that was last, they came in and the first thing they did is they just said, before we get into all the 
strategies and creative and all that stuff, we just, you know, when they introduced the team, they each stood up and told personally what they were going to do to improve the life of that marketing director and what, and they had like done research on the person and had like a very specific, like my job is to do this, to make you look good in X, Y, Z. And it was this cool thing where they just went around and it's super emotional of like, here's how I'm going to help you personally. And just went through all the different things they were going to do. And it was like, wow, that was a pretty emotional, memorable, like connection right there. And then of course they went on and did, you know, from there, like they were more primed to be excited about what's this work you're going to show me? What is the, what are these ideas? And of course loved it and ended up winning the business, which was, which was awesome. But I just thought that was such a cool, cool moment to just like really make it a personal thing rather than this big business elusive thing. It was just like my personal commitment to you is X. Powerful. Yeah. I'm going to use that one. I think. Okay. Can I steal that? Is that sure? Okay? Yeah. Do your worst. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask you the adverse of that question again. Uh, putting you on the spot here. Have you ever been in a pitch that's completely tanked? Oh yeah, just gone terribly. Tell me, tell me about one of your worst pitch experiences. They happen all the time. <laughs> they happen all the time, and it's because again, maybe it maybe it ties back to this. I don't know, but they always focus on them and their own process and mm. not about the person they're pitching. Like they may come into a mean pitch and say, here's how we come up with our, you know, unique TM process of coming up with an idea. And I, and it drones right. on for half an hour of them showing me a process. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Like that doesn't matter to me. Or let me tell you like what we're all about and why we're so cool. And we're, you know, like trying to, pitch so that they're this persona, but I honestly am like, I don't care. Like it should be about the person you're pitching. Like, what does it matter to them? That's the person making the decision. I will tell you, there was one other memorable pitch story that I don't know if it went good or bad, but it was memorable is years ago, I was working on the Plantronics headset account. And we had this idea around, um, you know, it was like these new hands-free headsets that you could just go anywhere and do whatever. And we came up with this idea of like doing a parkour TV spot with the headset on, right? And in the middle of the pitch, what I ended up doing is I stood up and I'm telling you this whole thing. And this guy goes over here and jumps on this thing. And then I go to the big conference room table and I did a front flip across the table. And we had positioned the chairs of the two executives. So they were right across. And I flipped right between them with just barely missing and not kicking them in the face. And it was like this thing that I practiced and practiced. It was so dumb. But, what? but I did this like parkour move across the conference room table. And it was just such an anomaly, you know, that they were like not expecting someone to do a flip across the table right between them, that it freaked them out so much that it was like, went down as one of those big memorable pitches because it just like oh totally gosh. unexpected. And of course they, you know, I think we went, it, we went and made that spot and whatever. This was years ago. Like you, you did, know. you won, you think? Oh yeah. Well, well we were, they, we pitched three or four and they had to pick one. So, but that was the one. That oh, right, won, right, yeah, right. Just because of that crazy. Wow. Flip. But I just kept, I remember thinking like, what if I kick him in the face? What if I miss? Like, 
that will not. Were be you the already best like into parkour at the time? Were no. You, were you like naturally? No. Ah, what what I mean, possibly made you think that it was a good idea? Well, I was a rock climber, so I figured I could figure it out, right? Okay. You know? Yeah. Fair. Fair. <laughs> not that I'm like super athletic, but I could try it. It's just doing a flip, like a rolling flip across the table. But anyhow, it's just funny. I, like, I couldn't do that. That could have gone poorly. <laughs> like that could have been the worst experience ever if I'd kicked someone. But luckily, it I really wouldn't. And it turned out, but. Wow, I love that. I've heard a lot of pitch stories in my time. That's the first front flip off the table (laughs) that that I've heard. That's fantastic. So I know that you are a busy guy. Anything that you're doing at the minute that you want to mention now? Any new books on the horizon is my my interest. I hate to reveal it because then that means I have to do it and I can't be lazy. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, the whole podcast that I'm doing, Real Creative Leadership, is almost a an experiment of research as well, right? Like Mm. interviewing people and leaders at the top of their game and talking about stories and experiences that help us truly understand what real creative leadership is all about. So of course there's going to be a book, a book series probably. And that's where I guess one of my big ideas is instead of it just being a one-off book, it's almost like in fiction where, you know, there's a series that all connect to each other. I have a whole plan of like, a series of books that are all going to be connected and work well together all around this whole topic of creative leadership. Love it. And here's a follow-on question then. Out of all of these brilliant, super world-class creatives you've interviewed, what is your uh, one of the biggest kind of insights or aha moments for you that you've heard doing the podcast? I think that just we're all human. Like, there's no one, you know, I, I remember when I was young, starting out in the industry, it was like, oh, you look up at those heroes and those larger than life mm. people and you just think they've got it all figured out and they're so much better. And I've had some of my heroes. I had Luke Sullivan on my show, his his book, Hey Whipple Squeeze This, like made a huge impact on me and, and right. my life. And other rock stars like Jason Sperling, who's like the guy who did the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC campaign, right? Like he's done so many iconic things that I've loved. But what I found is like, again, we're all just a bunch of people and no one's like made special or unique or anything. It's just people who are just trying and doing things and experimenting and doing amazing things. And that's kind of how I feel like, like we're all just like, so don't, don't feel like you're, you don't have a shot at it. You can't do it. Like, of course you can. You just have to be tenacious. You just have to try. You have to go make stuff. So let's all just go be makers. Brilliant. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been absolutely superb. And maybe we can do it again sometime, especially if you've got a new series of books coming out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I better get working on that. It takes a lot of effort. (laughs) This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for PitchGuy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.